The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Uh, we're continuing and actually finishing our series uh, called Garden to City. We're looking through Scripture and seeing how God has made Himself known to us um, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, even from the earliest pages of Genesis, how He starts to show us these ultrasounds of what Christ would be like uh, and, and what works He would do. And so what a great journey it's been. Uh, we're going to finish up. We started in Genesis. Today we're finishing up in, any guesses? Okay, Revelation. <laughs> You're like, I know the answer, but I don't want to say it. Uh, we're going we're gonna to read chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5. This is God's word. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed, God's, ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and, pre- and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Well, what an amazing story that we read this morning. And something you might expect in the book of Revelation, right? Horns and thrones and seals and bowls with the prayers of the saints. For what purpose were you born? What meaning does your life have? What circumstances? How are the circumstances and joys and sorrows in your life today, how do they fit into the greater purposes of God? I mean, good questions for like before lunch on Sunday, right? Easy questions like that. Well, difficult as it may be, uh, there's a point uh, that the Bible wants to make. Uh, Doesn't get into the details. We see here a a vision from the Apostle John of, of, of how it will all end, how it will all come to be for us to know the purposes of God. And the Bible makes a point over and over and over again that all of history... Everything that has happened, including your history, can be defined in terms of God's salvation history. Everything that we want to know about about why 
things have happened to us the way that they have happened or not happened can be defined and find its place in God's history of his redemption of the world and his people. That's what this series is meaning, from garden to city. We're looking at the whole breadth of it all, the whole story of it all. It's about seeing God's unfolding story from the moment he steps onto the scene in the garden. When, when, when chaos uh, floods into creation and God is there saying, I'm going to fix this, I'm going to make it better, I'm going to end all sadness, and it's going to come through great, great difficulty and great sorrow and great uh, wounding to me. One of the things I mildly regret in my life is not getting LASIK surgery when I was much younger. I don't know, there's something about shooting a laser into my eye that was a deterrent. <laughs> but there is something strange and difficult about waking up every morning and not being able to see until I put in my, my contact lenses or put my glasses on. But I need my glasses, I need to look through these lenses in order to see the world properly, in order to see the world clearly. And the Bible uses a metaphor like this so often of our own blindness and keeps directing us to the lenses uh, through which we are to see our life. And if we want to see things clearly, we must put on the lenses of God's redemptive history and his plan and his story. And he would say to us, well, the reason you're anxious, the reason you're troubled, the reason that you are confused is because you are, are not seeing what God sees. And don't you know that if you saw everything the way that God sees things, you would not be worried for a moment. If you saw everything as clearly as God sees things, you would, you, would never, you would never be in doubt. You would never question His care. You would never question His presence or His plans. And yet you would rejoice in suffering. You would be content with, with your wants. And it's in this story we have... We, have, we see the, the unfolding history. We've been unfolding this for the past several weeks. I called my in-laws recently, and I said, what are you doing? And they said, well, we're watching the news. And somewhat sarcastically, I said, anything good happening in the world? They said, no. Of course, they chuckled just as you did. Somewhat sarcastically, we know, like, the world is wounded. It's broken. We wake up every morning with a steady dose of, of bad news, a steady dose of of, of news that can drive us to despair if we let it, and it never stops, does it? And we wonder, can it get better? Will it get better? Anything good happening in the world? Who will be our savior? We're wondering, what's going to happen to make this better, and who can save us from it all? And this is where the book of Revelation steps in. In fact, this is where God steps in all throughout Scripture to answer those very questions. This is the purpose for which you have been born. This is, this is how everything in your life fits together to tell one story and if we know God's story, then we will be able to see everything through, the, through His lenses, and it will all make sense. And Revelation, our passage today, gives us something, not so much all the details, but it gives us a glimpse behind the curtain for us to look into the purposes of God so that we can expect what will happen. And we can expect to see how all of our experiences fit into God's purposes and plans. The Apostle Paul, he's on a small island off the coast of modern-day Turkey, and he is taken in the Spirit to some future vision of God's future kingdom. He's taken supernaturally to see this, this, this event. He's taken to God's throne room, where all, of, all, all, are, all are gathered and all the heavenly hosts are gathered there. This is the same John who wrote the, the, the Gospel of John, 
and there's this huge throne. Would you just picture this? Picture what's happening with John. He has this vision, and he, he sees this huge throne. It's bigger than any throne that has, ever, that has ever been seen before, that has ever been known, and it's occupied by God, God Almighty. And picture this, in God's right hand, as John looks upon the throne and he sees God seated on high, on God's right hand is a scroll. And he can notice that there's, on the scroll it's written. Every square inch and the margins are set to zero. <laughs> and every square inch of the inside and the outside has words on it. Somehow John knows what's written on there, or the gist of it. He knows that what is written on this scroll are God's eternal decrees and purposes, and it's everything is on there. It's all the plans and purposes of God in all creation. It's God's hidden wisdom and how everything works together for his, his good and the good of those who love him. It is on there, it's all of his sovereign choice and how they are just and good and true. It's his grocery list, okay? Everything is on there. Everything in God's mind and heart is on this scroll. And John wants to read it. Wouldn't you? Yes. John wants to read it. He's I want to, what is on that? I want to read it. And he notices that there's seven seals on there. It's, it's sealed so it cannot be opened. And there's a problem. It's, 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 it cannot be opened. And so, and so they call out to all the world, uh, all of all the inhabitants of the earth, all of the creatures in heaven, all of the, all of the creatures under the earth. A, a, a decree goes out. Every, come come and, and open. Everyone come and try to open so that we can see the heart and mind and purposes of God and so that we can delight in that and all our worries will be put to rest and no one, no one can open it. And people try. No one comes. The angels look to one another and they shrug their shoulders and they say, we can't open it. We can't open it. I can't do it. Can you? No, I can't do it either. Maybe one of the archangels, the highest ranking angels that we see in the Bible, maybe Gabriel or Michael, right? They're the ones that are the strongest of the angels. Can they do it? Oh, they can't even do it. Maybe the seraphim. The seraphim are the angels, the creatures that, that are around the throne of God in worship. They're the ones with the six wings that they fly with two, they cover their eyes with two, they cover their feet with two. These mighty angelic beings, they can't do it. Maybe the cherubim. The cherubims are the one, the strong angels that we see with the, the swords of fire. The ones standing outside of the garden, protecting it. These are the, the military angels. They have swords of fire and fire coming out of their eyes. Can they open it? They can't even open it. What about the American gladiators? You know, like Nitro or Blaze. I'm so glad some of you remember. <laughs> Gemini or Storm, I could have totally taken ice, you know, ice like, every, you know, ice, everyone can beat ice, not even them. I know I have some charismatic friends. What about the power team? Yeah? The guys who rip phone books in their hands and break baseball backs across their knees or bend rebar in their teeth all through the power of the Holy Spirit and creatine. You know, so these guys, right? No, they can't even open it. You see, God looks in heaven, the summons goes out to heaven and everyone on the earth and the strongest kinds of people, no one can do it. And John does something now that we, that we see, we see the hopelessness in it all. And I hope that you are wrapped in this story, wrapped up in it, and you see it too. You, you see this great thing before you, it's, it's so close you can touch it. In a moment, you're thinking, if this is opened, all of everything that I've ever wondered will be answered. Why that cancer? 
Why that wayward child? Why that lost relationship? God, you've told me to follow you, and the answer is on that scroll. I just want to read it. And so we look to John, and he's weeping. And it says that he weeps because no one is found who can open it. How hopeless. Remaining uncertain, remaining unknowing of God's plans and purposes. No one can open the scroll. No one is worthy to do it. Wouldn't you want to read that? Just to open it and know God's plans. Why that job was lost. Why that sickness. Why the medicine didn't work. And so John weeps and so would we. I think if we were brought into that room and, 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 that, and that hope was just diminished because all that we've ever wanted and all that we were created for to know was in, in arm's reach but we could not open it, you would weep as well. But one of the elders turns to John and he says, weep no more. Weep no more. Look who's coming. And he looks and he points. He says, it's a lion of Judah. It's the root of Jesse. He's back from battle and he has won. He comes conquering. He has conquered. He has fought and he has won. And there's no doubt who we are led to believe is the Lion of Judah. He's the promised Messiah in the Old Testament. He's the offspring of David, the seed of the woman from Genesis, the conquering king from Israel. He's the suffering servant that Isaiah told us about. He's the great high priest for God's people. He's Jesus Christ. And John looks and he turns and we expect John to turn and to see this roaring lion, as the elders point out. It's the coming, the lion of Judah, back from battle. And you expect John to turn and see this triumphant lion with a gold crown on his head, roaring for all of heaven and creation to hear. But that's not what he sees. Instead, he sees a, a lamb that is slain. And this was the great the great messianic expectation is that when the Savior did come, when the Lion of Judah came, he would come, fight, he would come looking like a king. He would come looking like a mighty warrior or a soldier ready for battle. And John knows better. He knows better because he walked with Jesus. He learned from Jesus. He, his eyes were opened by the Holy Spirit to God's plans and purposes and, and prophecies and Scripture fulfilled in Christ and he remembers Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem and being slain instead of, a, instead of a king riding into battle on a horse and taking his position as Lord over all. Instead, he sees Christ humble, laying down his life. And so John looks and he sees a lamb that is slain. He sees what John the Baptist saw when Jesus was walking and, and John the Baptist looked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because the only way we can experience the Lion King and, 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 and the God who is conquering is by seeing him in the form of a, a slain Lamb of God. He knows that, that the conquering Lion comes to us in the form of a slaughtered Lamb. And that's what John sees when he looks up. If we want to know God's power, we must know his, that He's crucified for our sins. If we want to know God's might and victory over sin and death, we must see Him laying down His life voluntarily for us. If we want to know the sweetness of forgiveness, we must know the cost for which it was purchased. And this is what John sees when he is taken in the Spirit 
to see God's eternal purposes unfolding. You know, God's people grew up in a culture of sacrifice. They spoke the language of sacrifice. They knew about what it meant to be a sacrifice, to become a sacrifice, and what it accomplished. The blood sacrifice went way back, all the way back to Egypt, when God's people were told to mark their doors with the blood of the Lamb. The blood sacrifice was was to mark their doors so that when the angel of death came to, when the wrath of God came to punish uh, Egypt, it would pass over their doors because they were covered by the blood of the Lamb. And when they did this, their homes were passed over, their lives were spared, and so they were saved by the blood of the Lamb because without the shedding of blood, they knew no one was saved. Jesus is the one. He is the only one capable of securing God's purposes for us. A summons goes out to all of creation, all of God's angelic population, the mightiest of all creatures that has ever been found, and no one can unlock that scroll. Jesus is the only one capable of securing and delivering unto us all that God has promised. He's the only sacrifice pure enough and suitable enough for God to receive and say, yes, this, this is enough. This is what I'm asking for. How do you think that you will find your way into relationship with God? Many of us have answers to that question. Some, you will find, are not good enough. How how do you expect to find your way in relationship with God forever? And a summons goes out to all of creation, and no one can do it. The best of all people, the strongest of all people, the smartest of all scholars, and no one can do it. How can you do it? Through your kindness? through your goodness, through your intellect, through your wealth? If so, then your kindness and goodness and intellect and wealth must be better than any of the angelic hosts. I think we can assume that it's not, right? Then you must depend on something else. Then you and I must depend on someone else. And so this is Jesus' function in our lives. This is the function of the Lamb of God in our lives. He's our Savior. He is our substitute, the only one worthy enough to bridge the divide between us and God. He's the only one able to unlock for you and for me the purposes for God that He has for us. He is the only one worthy enough to deliver unto us God's eternal promises and plans. Do you want life to make sense? You need to see it through the lens of Jesus crucified for you. Do you want want hope in the midst of trouble? You need to see struggle through the lens of Jesus triumphing over sin and death for you in your place. Look again at this scene. We see that the lamb has been slain, but we see very quickly that he is not dead. Right? So he's obviously slain, but John says he is slain and standing, and he grabs the scroll. So he's obviously, he is slain as giving the appearance of one being killed and yet he is still functioning. He's alive, but his wounds are visible. This is to remind us that even the joy, it is to remind us that even the joy and the the life that we have in Christ was bought at a great price. When we look at Christ and we see him risen, we are to have hope. We are to see him risen for us. We are to see our life hidden in his, and yet he still shows us his wounds, 
to remind us all that we have been saved not by our grit and our goodness, but His. He is to remind us, even when He reminds us of the life that we have and the forgiveness of sins that we have, that it came at a cost, and it's not the price that we pay, but it's the price that He has paid. We remember that Jesus did this. In His glorified and perfect body, His wounds were visible. Look at my wounds. Look at the gash in my side. Look at the holes in my hands and in my feet. Look at what I have done for you. I am alive. The relationship you now have with God by my grace and through faith was purchased for you. Not through your faithfulness. You were weak. Your character failed. Your righteousness was was empty. But my goodness prevailed. My faithfulness secured this for you. My righteousness was perfect. Let me remind you, it's through my grit, my goodness, my faithfulness. We're prone to pursue our own godliness. Even as as Christians with a clear and genuine confession of faith in Christ, we are prone to pursue our lives with God through our own self-will, our own self-effort. The Lamb who is slain reminds us that it's not about what what it costs us, but at what it costs Him. He's the key that unlocks the door to relationship with God, forgiveness of sins, and hope everlasting and enjoyment in the purposes of his world. This is his function. This is what he does for us that no one else can do. If we desire relationship with God, we must find it outside of ourselves and only in Christ. And so this is what he does. This is his function, his role in our life, and the the role in all of creation. But, But what position does he have? What position must he have in our life and position in all of all of the world? Well, what position does he take as John looks upon this throne? He, sa- he says he is on the throne. Where is this lamb that is slain? He is on the throne. Do you notice the songs of the elders, the, the angels and the thousands, the myriads on myriads, the thousands and thousands of, of those that are gathered, what they are doing? They're singing to the lamb who is seated on the throne. They're singing to the lamb who they're saying, you deserve honor. You deserve glory and praise. You're the true king to rule over all creation. You're the one with ultimate authority. Everything serves you. You don't serve anyone. You've purchased for yourself from every nation and language a people that belong to you. The focus is clearly on the lamb, on Christ and his accomplishments and his dominion over everything, right? So everything is looking upward and everyone is saying, in paraphrase, okay, you win. It's all about you. Everything is about you. You have purchased everything by virtue of your perfect life, death, and resurrection, and now you get to tell everything what to do, and we all have to listen. Joyfully so. That's what everyone is saying. There's no question in this passage, as John sees a vision of God's eternal purposes, who the boss is. Jesus is the boss. There's this phrase that I hear mostly in generations before me, I admit. I don't hear people saying, uh, people my age saying it too often, but we really should. When people older than me describe their experience of, of becoming a Christian and their Christian conversion, they say things like, and that's when I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. Everything's Lord and Savior, right? You, you, I hear that so often in generations before me. I don't hear a lot of people my age saying it. 
Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I accepted him as my Lord and Savior. What it means is I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe that he is the one that bridges the gap between me and God. And therefore, I no longer belong to myself, and my life is no longer my own, but I belong to God who purchased my life from me, and therefore, he is the Lord of my life. He is the boss of my life. He is the one who sits on the throne of my life. It's not about me, but it's about him. And so it's not so much that Jesus just died for my sins, I'm forgiven, and he's given me this great promise of eternal life with him. Yes, it is that, but it is way too narrow. Jesus is not only Savior, he is Lord. He owns us because he bought us by his blood. He died for my sins and he gives blessing to me. He is your Savior. Praise God for that. But Jesus purchased your life with his blood, and now you belong to him, mind, body, and soul. You are not your own. He's Lord. He's on the throne. Many of us remain on the throne of our lives and are happy to use Jesus in our life as a friend, as a consultant, as a good example. You see, Jesus is our friend, right? He, he boosts our self-esteem. When no one else likes us, we're reminded that Jesus loves us in spite of our failures. And so we run to him as our friend, as we should, but he is not only our friend. So many of us run to Christ and receive him as our savior and consultant. When we're having a hard time, we say, well, I'm learning a lot from other people, from, from colleagues and counselors, and let me go to God's word and see what he has to offer. And we weigh all this good advice, and maybe we'll take God's advice, maybe we'll take a friend's advice, but he's not our Lord. We don't go to his word and saying, what you say, when I hear what you say, then the conversation is over. That's what it means for him to be our Lord. That's what it means for him to be on the throne. If we are debating with God, then we are on the throne of our lives. Many of us look at him as an example. We say, what would Jesus do? Maybe you want to be good like Jesus. I would commend you to be good like Jesus. But you will never be good like Jesus. He transforms us more and more into the image of Christ. We become more and more like Jesus as we take ourselves off of the throne and live for him trusting in his righteousness, trusting in the good news of his work for us. He changes us. He is on the throne. Is he on the throne of your life? I may ask you if he's your savior, do you trust in him? Do you realize that you are no, that you have no merit of your own can accomplish what, what God has called you to have to, for all his purposes and good and, and forgiveness and hope and salvation? And you realize, yes, like John, I am not good enough to open up the scroll, but is he on the throne of your life? Do you worship him with your attitudes, your actions, your behaviors? Do you submit your will unto his and say, you are the only one worthy? of my praise? Does he direct your life, your decisions, or your affections? He holds the universe in the palm of his hand, and he's actively working in all of creation to bring about God's purposes as far as the curse is found. He invites us into that, to be among the myriads and myriads and thousands upon thousands who worship him, and we know that as we continue to read that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, including you, that Jesus is Lord, that he is on the throne. Because we will see it as clearly as John sees it. 
We get to do that now on earth. We get to worship him on earth. We get to fall down with the elders and with the angels, and we get to worship him. We get to live a life that trusts in him and lives with a present hope based on a future promise. And we get to have the joy knowing that, we, that our life and our destiny does not rest in our faithfulness, but in God's. And we, we know the end of that story. The elders, the angels, they proclaim, they sing, and they say, by his blood he ransomed people for God. What does that mean? Ransomed means purchased. It's a word that signifies ownership. You know how much is that doggy in the window, the one with the wag waggy tail? You go and you buy that doggy and you bring it home. And you don't say to the dog, okay, what would you like to do with your life? You say, I'm going to train you. I'm going to tell you this is where you play. This is where you go to the bathroom. This is where you eat. And when you eat, and there's a sense of when you buy something valuable, you know, you get a nice new TV or you, you, you renovate your kitchen or you, 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 uh, you get a new car. You walk by this new purchase with a sense of pride and ownership. And that's right. I'm the boss of this. I own this. I tell this what to do. I bought you with my sweat and my labor and my tears. You do what I say. Jesus bought it all. He redeemed it all. He owns it all. The scene in heaven is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of good news, and what we often consider the gospel is too narrow. It focuses on the lamb that is slain, Christ's love for us, demonstrated on the cross to forgive our sins. But the lamb, lamb is not only slain, the lamb, the lamb is on the throne. We belong to him. Is Christ's ownership of your life an aspect of the gospel that you have grasped clearly? first in your thinking and then in your doing, first in your thinking, then in your living? Is it, is it an aspect of the gospel, not only are you forgiven and loved, but that you also belong to Jesus? That your life does not belong to yourself, and this is not a bad thing. You've been purchased. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. The scope of this scene should make us want to join in worship. The scope of this scene should make us want to fall down on our knees like the elders and say, Amen and worship God with clear voices, with open hearts. Do you see the drama unfold? Do you see this wonderful, beautiful picture of God's purposes? The hidden joys of God hidden in the scroll. The longing for somebody to come and open that scroll and let us know what's in it. The hopelessness and feeling that no one can open the scroll. And then the joy of seeing the Lamb of God come with confidence and ability, and willingness, and joy in opening that scroll, the conquering king becoming the sacrificial lamb, and then the multitudes worshiping God in joy. Do you see the drama? This is, all, this is what it is. This is life that God has given to us. This is, this is his eternal purpose beyond our own seeing. This is why he tells us to walk by faith and not by sight. This is why he tells us things are going on that you cannot see. But one day you will see clearly. You will know clearly as, as clearly as you are known. You will know fully all of my purposes for you. But not unless you know Jesus as the Lamb who has been slain for you and who sits on the throne as Lord over all. It's very awe-inspiring. It's, it's an expansive movement of God's saving work throughout the world. Here it is, God's answer to all sadness, 
all of our longing, all of the angst of our generation. Every time we turn on the news and we feel that angst and that longing and that sadness, here's the answer. The answer is to see the Lamb of God crucified, slain, and in control. That's it. And then Him working in creation to bring about His plans through the church, through His Spirit, working in His people. The Lamb of God who sits on the throne will accomplish all of God's purposes in your life and in the world. Do you believe that? The purposes that God has. And maybe you look upon that scroll and you're wondering, I wonder if my name is written in there. When it's unfolded and the names are read in God's book, am I among those? Do you know it will come not because of your own goodness and your grit, it will become because of Jesus' grace and mercy for you. He says, no one, no one that has come to me with a broken heart, a contrite spirit, no one who has cried out for my mercy have I denied. He's working in your life right now to soften your heart, to invite you to trust in Him, to empower you to resist sin and temptation, to live lives that are glorifying to Him, like the elders and the angels and all that gather around the throne and worship Him in their thinking and in their living. He invites you into that. Not a single syllable will be lost. Not a single thing on his to-do list will remain undone. Not all, all shadows will go away. All tears will be dried up. All longings will be met in Christ. And his message, his, his message of the gospel is to go out into the world. Do you see that? That as this, as this singing goes on, it's a story that we are a part of. It's a story that, that we should long to live out even now. We're made a kingdom of priests to go into God's world, into our families, our workplaces, our neighborhood, to bring the whole gospel to the whole world. What a great privilege. What a great privilege it is to be counted among the true worshipers of God who gather around His throne and say, thank you. It's all about you. And I want to live my life in praise and glory and honor for you. Let's do that as people. Let's have faith in his work. And let's give him his rightful place in our life as Lord over all. Let's pray.